You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 63. And today we're asking the question, how subjective is technical risk assessment? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, what's today's question? David, today we're going to ask a question about risk assessment. Uh, Risk assessment, as you know, is a topic that's dear to my heart and has come up before on the podcast. A couple of episodes to mention, way back in episode 8 was one of our more popular episodes talking about risk matrices, and then in episode 40 we talked about one of our own papers talking about expert judgments of risk. And in both of those episodes we referred to some other research that compares what happens when you get different technical experts assessing the similar risks and whether they come to the same answer. But that's the question that we want to look directly at in today's episode. So the broad problem is that if we say that risk is objective, or the term we usually use is positivist, we're saying that there's out there in the real world somewhere a true value for the risk. And it's just waiting for us to go and find out what that true value is. On the other hand, if you say that risk is subjective or constructed, then we're saying that risk is something that exists inside our own heads. So we can't go and find out what risk is. We can just negotiate some sort of social consensus. Now, normally that's just a sort of philosophical question. It's something that scholars of risk like to talk about down at the pub or at their conferences or in their journals. But it's also a really practical question that we can look at when we've got the same risk and multiple people are independently assessing that risk. If risk is really objective, then you'd expect people to be able to find out what that answer is. You know, you'd expect them not to be perfect, but at least to most of the time come up with the same answer. You know, if the risk of a particular thing is low or 10 on a scale of 25, then you'd expect most people assessing it to get an answer of low or an answer somewhere around 10. You know, maybe some people would give 8, maybe some people would give 12, but you wouldn't expect the answers to be spread all over the place. And so the paper we're looking at today is directly going to be looking at that idea, looking at whether if we give people individually the same problem to solve or the same situation to assess the risk for, do they give us the same answer? Andrew, when we talk about risk assessment, um, I mean, that's a a word that I suppose a lot of our listeners and safety professionals use every single day, but it's a very broad term. It can sort of talk about a whole lot of different practices and, and different ideas. Now, there's a couple that I just wanted to sort of test before we dive into the paper. The paper uses the word technical risk or quantitative risk sometimes. But in the paper we're talking about today, what they're really, when they're saying that, they're really just talking about risk matrices, which is where you've got a category label, you replace that with a number, you add or multiply those numbers together, and then you convert it back into a category label of risk. Now, I've always thought of this as semi-quantitative risk, not actual like probabilistic risk assessment. So how do you see those differences between like a, a risk assessment you'll do with the risk matrix and what you might do as a risk engineer with, a, with an actual QRA? That's a really good question to ask. I I think the starting point to talk about here is that there is no such thing as semi-quantitative. It's a word that I admit that people use and I understand why they use it, 
but there's nothing that is sort of a number. No. Risk, risk is never a number. So you, you can't do purely quantitative risk assessment. And the reason risk is never a number is because what we're always talking about, the underlying reality, if we think that risk is objective, is that there is a probability distribution of particular outcomes. So what we're trying to do is describe that probability distribution. The question is, how precisely do we want to describe it? In When people talk about a quantitative risk assessment, what they're talking about is generating either point probabilities or generating that entire distribution as accurately as they can for a particular set of described outcomes. When people talk about semi-quantitative, really what they're talking about is treating risk as an enumeration. Uh, now, the difference between an enumeration and a quantitative value is that an enumeration has an order attached to it. So it lets us say that this thing is more than that thing. And that's the reason what, why people use risk matrices, and it's what they're doing in the paper we look at today, is we've got a whole bunch of projects. We're trying to put them in order from least risk to most risk. And somewhere in the middle, we're going to start drawing lines and treating risks differently based on where they are in that order. So no, it's not probabilistic. It has lots of probabilistic questions underneath it. Very often people are talking about what they think the likelihood of particular outcomes are. They're just very seldom being explicit about those numbers. Uh, thanks, Drew. I think that's a really good short overview lecture for our listeners on on sort of quantitative and, and non-quantitative risk. And sorry to put you on the spot with that with that question, but it was just, I think, language. We, we talk about how important language is when we say risk assessment. And and the reason that I asked that question will hopefully make sense as we go through this paper, because what I don't want is some of our listeners who are probably more in the risk engineering world who go, yeah, but the people who are in this study weren't experts and the risk assessment method wasn't even a reliable risk assessment method. So, of course, the outcome is what it was. No, and I'm glad you asked it. We've had a couple of people asking us to do an episode on qualitative risk assessments. And again, I think when we talk about qualitative risk assessments, usually we're talking about enumerated in that we're trying to put risks into an order so that we can then categorize them as acceptable or unacceptable. Now, interestingly, you're talking about sort of expertise in risk assessment. There are very strong arguments that that is exactly what people are doing, even when they think they're doing very quantitative risk assessment, that really the underlying process is really one about categorizing risks into acceptable or unacceptable. They're just using numbers to describe those decisions. Andrew, I don't know how close this is to the topic of, of this week or risk in general, but since I've got um, your expertise, I might as well just be selfish and ask you another question. Say we're thinking about um, how aligned we can get around a risk assessment. I think one of the challenges that we face in organisations, and it'll talk a little bit to the method in this project, is that we're trying to assess the risk of a particular activity on a particular day. And really, that can only have two kind of outcomes. It can go well or it can maybe not go well. So if we think of driving, for example, we know in much of the developed world, or if we take the Australian example, that you know something like one in 10,000 of the population will you know, be fatally injured in a motor vehicle accident every year. Like they're the statistics, you know, however many hundred people over a 20 million population every single year, give or take you know, 10%. But for one driver on one day with one journey, trying to assess, to create some sort of assessment of that particular activity becomes a very different proposition about then risk at a population level. So I'm just curious as your thoughts about, you know, if we think about the question today, and maybe you can answer it now, or maybe you can you can give your thoughts at the end, is um, is it ever realistic to expect people to align around something that's kind of like, you know, so sort of so singular and so so specific as opposed to just saying, you know, align over these sort of broad population type risks? 
I think if we are trying to get people to make point estimates of tiny probabilities, then we know that humans just aren't very good at that. If we're trying to get people to align on that sort of fundamental question of whether a risk is acceptable or unacceptable, then the people who talk about risk as socially constructed would say that's exactly what we do. That, you know, the question isn't what is the particular risk of this particular driver on this particular day? The question is, generally speaking, do we want to let this sort of person drive? And as a society, we've come up with processes to make that decision. We've come up with licensing systems to make that decision. We've come up with fines and court prosecutions if we think people are getting that decision wrong. And that's how we sort of socially negotiate what is and isn't an acceptable risk of driving. Um, I, I think when it comes to things like determining the approval of a project or determining the acceptance of a tender or determining the whether a particular product should be allowed onto the market, that there's a reasonable expectation that those decisions shouldn't come down to just the particular attitude of a particular person. People generally believe, and I think act in a way consistent with this general belief, that it's the process itself which comes to the answer, and that a reasonable person following that process will get the same answer each time, and two reasonable people will come roughly to the same answer. Sure, there might be small individual differences, but that's because they're making slightly different assumptions or have access to slightly different information. There shouldn't be just fundamental differences. So you can imagine a meeting where we've got 10 projects on the table, and which, ones, which of these projects are we going to, going to approve? We don't want to every single person in the meeting has to look at every single project. We would rather have a process that if someone else has classified this as high risk, that we can trust that classification. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, I like that, Drew. And I think it reminds me, um, what you just said there reminds me, we we haven't talked about um, our literature review that we wrote on the safety profession, but we did make a statement in there, which has been quoted a few times, which is that safety isn't a standard to be achieved. It's a point of consensus amongst stakeholders. And maybe that's true of kind of risk as well. It, it really doesn't matter if it's high, medium or low. It's kind of, you know, whether it's acceptable or not. And I think even in our risk matrices episode in episode eight, I think we said that, you know, at the end of the day, a risk matrix might just need to have two cells in it. One is to list all the risks you don't need to do anything more about, and one cell just to list all the risks that you agree that you do need to do more about. Um, and getting hung up on whether something's high, medium, low, extreme, or otherwise might not be as important as what you then go and do about it. We, we said that a little bit facetiously, although I'm willing to stand by it as a conclusion. But, but I, do, I do understand and accept that it's a reasonable question to then ask, well, how do we know which of those two boxes does something go into? And can you give us a process, please, for going what goes in one box, what goes in one box, and what are the things in the middle? And then suddenly, you know, you've gone from two boxes back into high, medium, and low. So let's assume that a risk matrix is a is a process that people can choose from to decide which box those risks are, which of those two boxes those risks might go in. So that's so what we're going to test in this episode is whether we can get people in similar roles to individually assess the same risk and get them to come to the same answer. So if our process is working, that similar people looking at this, looking at a, the same risk should come out with a, a similar conclusion. And, and, and that would be the, I suppose, the hypothesis um, for the process. Drew, would you like to introduce the paper that um, you've chosen for today? Okay, so the paper is called, Are We Objective? A Study into the Effectiveness of Risk Measurement in the Water Industry. Uh, some background details. It was published in the journal MDPI Sustainability in 2019. 
I think, David, this is the first time I haven't said, and this is a reputable journal on the podcast. Sustainability is a rapid publication journal, and it's got a very broad scope. So I'm cautious about the quality of peer review. Let's put it that way. But remember that the quality of a journal doesn't really say anything positive or negative about any individual paper. It's just a sort of background calibration for how closely you need to scrutinize the details. You're likely to scrutinize a paper in a good journal a bit less and trust it a bit more. Uh, when the journal's less reputable, then you've got to look closer at the technical details. Uh, the authors of this paper are all from University of Melbourne. They're Anna Kosovac, Brian Davidson, and Hector Milano. Dr. Kosovac is currently a research fellow, and this paper comes out of their PhD project. Um, so I think you can take it as a given that the work was good enough to be awarded a PhD from the University of Melbourne. I think we should probably link the full PhD in the show notes, because it's a really fascinating look at how you've got these technical risk processes, and then you've got individuals with individual risk perception, and then you're feeding both of those things into influencing decision-making. And the project is all focused around sort of project approval type decisions in the water industry, uh, with projects ranging from replacing pumps and pipes to deciding whether we should drink recycled water or put fluoride into the water supply. Uh, the other two authors, Professors Davidson and Milano, they were the supervisors for Anna's PhD. They both have deep expertise in water infrastructure, including on the business side. So when it comes to how you should sort of default treating this paper as a source of evidence, I would assume that it's definitely a trustworthy source of information about the water industry and trust anything that it says about how the water industry works on face value. Uh, but I'm more inclined to read carefully when it talks about risk and the particular methods it's used to test out how people assess risk. David, do you think that's sort of fair from the paper? Yeah, I think that's fair. When you, I had a quick through, look through the reference list, uh, Drew, and I see, um, I see your your research pop up in the reference list, but um, the literature review didn't have a really deep uh, discussion on on risk. I mean, it was quite um, a high level overview. I mean, it did it did talk about some good history of risk matrices in organisations and you know individual uh, social perception of risk and things like that. But it it was probably light on you know risk risk content. Yeah, David, I think you've sort of uncovered my secret method of finding some of the papers for this study is I look up who has cited my work and then go and read it. And if I like it, it's likely to be interesting to me. So that, that is actually how I found this paper. But they, they don't just cite us. They also cite sort of most of the big names you would expect in general risk assessment, but not some of the people who are sort of really, really critical about what risk assessment means or what risk is philosophically. So it's a sort of very practical literature review about risk assessment. The method that was undertaken in this research is they they had 77 professionals from four different water authorities in Melbourne. So the different local government or state government area water authorities. Um, obviously, there was sort of some good industry collaboration around this project. And all of those 77 professionals were people who make decisions about water projects within their organisation. And they have experience following their organisation's own risk assessment process. But Drew, I wouldn't call um, any of that the participants, risk experts, or um, necessarily risk managers. And I think that this is a little bit important um, when we talk about some more of the methods. So the selection criteria for participants was that the participants just had to have experience undertaking like a single risk assessment on a project and to have decision-making responsibility for projects. So they're not risk engineers, they're not necessarily safety professionals, they're project managers, project engineers, site managers, and other sort of um, operational roles in projects. Now, that doesn't matter one way or the other 
the other way, but I just think it's um, important for listeners who are sort of going to think about what we talk about with findings to think about who the people were who were making these assessments. Yeah, that's an interesting one, David. When we're evaluating any sort of process, I think it's important that we evaluate it with the people who are using that process. So I think if this is like a study of how do risk matrices work in the water industry, and they'd picked 30 students from University of Melbourne, then it would be reasonable to say that the students were disagreeing because they weren't familiar with the process. They're not the people who actually use it day to day. They don't understand the projects. This is not a process which has been designed for use by risk experts. So this is a process that is designed and is used by exactly the sort of people who are involved as participants in this study. And so I think that is actually the right set of participants. We can ask later whether those are the people who should be making the risk assessment decisions. And that's a sort of another discussion we can have. But in terms of how do you evaluate a method, absolutely the perfect way is get the people who are supposed to be the ones using this method and get them to do it. Each participant was given seven hypothetical projects and they were asked to score the overall risk of that project based on likelihood and consequence. I have to admit, this is not a task that I've ever had to do myself. It's more of a sort of project manager style risk assessment. I'm much more used to assessing the risk of particular outcomes, whereas this is much more classifying just the overall project. What's the likelihood and severity of sort of the worst thing that could happen on the project? They were asked to use their own organization's methods. So the participants are in sort of four groups from four organizations, each one using a slightly different method the author's claim is basically at the same, coming from the same standard. For three of the organizations, this means that they're using a five by five risk matrix. Uh, refer back to our episode eight for why you should not do that. Uh, but that's the standard that they're following. And then for those three, for three organizations, the total score is you just multiply the likelihood score by the consequence score. Uh, so the lowest possible score is one. The highest possible score is 25. And there are some numbers in between that are impossible to get because you can't get them by multiplying those two numbers together. Like I think a score of 17 is impossible. Um, for the other organizations, so organization number four, that they, they do it a bit differently. They get their risk score by adding together the likelihood and the consequence. Um, and so the researchers included them just by taking that added together score and scaling it up so that it's spread over between one and 25. They then took the square root of that final score from each from each person and used the square root as their main value. Uh, we'll talk about that one again in a moment. But the end result is that for every one of the seven project, they have 77 separate scores coming from 77 different people. Everyone is using the same information. Uh, apart from the organizational differences, they're all using the same methods. So if the process is working correctly, you'd be expecting them to come to roughly the same answer. Andrew, I think just in terms of these seven different projects to give people a sense of what they were, what the participants were actually assessing, you know, they, they gave them four familiar projects. So this is something like pipe replacement along a busy road, which is a task that these project managers and water authorities would do all the time, excavate, replace a pipe, um, manage traffic. And then they gave them these three unfamiliar projects. You mentioned like, should we drink fluoride or recycled water? Or for example, a hypothetical implementation of a new radiation-based water treatment method. So I think this was a, a good way of seeing whether the differences or alignment happened in, in familiar activities or um, unfamiliar activities, because then you can sort of get an idea into the process as well as the, um, you know, the shared knowledge of, of the group and, you know, what might've been affecting it. David, if you don't mind, we've talked about the positives of the method. 
you we mentioned that they're doing realistic participants using projects that the participants are mostly familiar with and methods that the participants are familiar with. Uh, but I do want to take a couple of minutes just to nitpick some problems with the methods. The, the first one is that you can read the entire paper and they don't actually say what the project descriptions are. So I had to go back and find the original thesis to find the project descriptions. And they're all pretty thin. They're just a couple of paragraphs about each project. And th th that is a big problem because the less information people have, the more inconsistent they're going to be because they're going to be making all sorts of assumptions. And you know, I reckon some there are some people who you give them a very thin description and just the uncertainty attached to it being so thin is going to cause them to give a particularly high risk score. And I think, Drew, this is one that um, I realised after you'd, you'd sort of called that out in the notes about the original descriptions. And then I was thinking if you had to come up with one number for a project like I just mentioned earlier, replacing a section of pipe along a busy road, and you got to think about the excavation, you got to think about the pipe handling, you got to think about, you know, all the traffic management, and then you got to think about all the controls that you think that you'd have in place in your organization and how many times you do that task and how, and then just basically put one number on the table for that project with a couple of paragraphs of information. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot open to interpretation. The, the other thing is that the statistical methods that they've used are a little bit dodgy. Just a couple of examples of that. Uh, so they say in the paper that when you multiply two numbers from one to five, the results are going to be a little bit positively skewed, um, which is true. And But they then say that's why they took the square root of the results, which is nonsense because the square root of a positively skewed distribution is still positively skewed. Um, I have to admit, I actually sat down with an Excel spreadsheet and tested this out. And yeah, there, there's no way that the square taking the square root of the results adds anything, except that it makes it look to the human eye, a little bit more like a normal distribution. And there's a few things they've done through this throughout that make it look like they're doing an analysis that's more sophisticated than they're actually doing, but that don't improve the validity of the results. I think somehow they got it into their heads that they needed to have things that looked like normal distributions. And so they've worked really hard to make the data look normal when most none of the tests they do actually need normal distributions to the results to be useful. But then on the other hand, there are some extra tests that they really should have done, which would have genuinely helped us out with the results that they didn't do. Um, and I'll talk about those as we go through, but there are some questions that I think naturally arise that they could have answered with a little bit more of an analysis. I will say, though, that none of these statistical problems compromise the results. They're just annoying and they're the sort of thing that happens when you submit your paper to a journal that doesn't give it thorough peer review. They're the sorts of things that peer reviewers would find and fix. The original aim of this paper was to see whether are we objective, like it's in the paper title, it's that, and, and how they were defining objective was these scores that would come out on a range of one to five would then be categorized as low, medium, high, or extreme, which um, our listeners will be very familiar with, which is typically like a green, yellow, orange, or red colored boxes on your matrix. And what um, the researchers were looking for was to say that would the, 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 the individual assessments all come out as high? or all come out as medium, or all come out as extreme. So they weren't necessarily expecting the individual numbers between 1 and 25 to be the same, or 8 or 10 or 12. But what they were hoping to find, I think, hoping to find, or maybe not hoping to find, but one of the outcomes would have been to have the majority of assessments for the individual projects to align in one of those four categories. Yeah, so, so you would hope that at least people could agree that the risk is low or you have a mix of low and mediums or a mix of medium highs or a mix of highs and extremes. 
So, Drew, before we jump on to say it, I just want maybe uh, for our listeners who are listening through now. So the minimum possible score was one. If it's a likelihood of one and a consequence of one, multiply them together, it's a one. And the highest is a is 25, which is obviously a certain likelihood and a fatality or multiple fatality event. And the risk score is 25. So have a think about familiar projects in your organization and think about what range within there would you expect to find? So, you know, whether it's eight to 12 or 10 to 20, have a think for yourself about if you gave this to 20, if you gave this task to 20 people in your organization, what range of values would you expect? And what would you consider to be like nice tight clustering and what would you consider to be way too spread out? Have we stalled long enough, David? To Yeah, Drew, I'm, I'm, this, is, this just still baffles me. Yes. Yeah, so for three of the projects, the range of scores went from one to 25, which means quite literally we have a project which is going onto a busy street to replace a stretch of pipes. And one person thinks that the worst thing possible is almost impossible and will be insignificant. And another person thinks that the worst thing possible is almost certain and is going to be catastrophic. So one person would be comfortable doing it every day without much precaution. The other person thinks the company should never, ever, ever do anything like this particular project. So that's three of the projects. Two of the projects were much, much more conservative range. Their scores ranged from two to 25. And then for the other three, the range was from one to 20. So there was no one up in that catastrophic range, but all other scores were given. So this means that for all seven projects, for the exact same project, depending on which assessor you got out of the 77, you could get a score that either said the risk is negligible or the risk is extreme. And the rest of the paper is just sort of testing out what are the possible reasons that this could happen? I think, Drew, this is really good discussion because I'm hoping or expecting, um, or at least I was, our, our, our listeners to be going, um, gee, okay, I think I've got an answer for why that might have happened or, or, or maybe it was this or maybe it was that. So I think we talked through some of these tests because um, the researchers did do a pretty good job of, of when those results uh, when they when they got those results and analysed the results in that way of of trying to look to see you know there's a couple of pages where they try to look to see if they can explain that range because even if I think the researchers didn't expect to get that are we objective I still think that the results that they would have got would have surprised even would have surprised them. So the first and I think the most obvious possible explanation is that it's just outliers that you interview 77 people. One of them is going to just tick one, 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 and someone else is going to tick five, 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 five. So most obvious treatment is you cut off the most extreme scores. Um, they did that in this study using standard deviations of the answers. So sort of how many are within one standard deviation, how many are within two standard deviations. Um, given that they're assuming a normal distribution, all this just means is you take either the middle 95% of answers or the middle 68% of answers. So take the most conservative one, just the middle 68%. So this is we cut out 30 of the people who are responding and consider those to be too extreme. The project with the greatest consensus, so the tightest grouping, still ranges from between 3 and 10, which is between sort of low risk and medium risk. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And, and all the others are considerably worse. So like between low and high or medium and critical. So I think for listeners, so for none of the projects that were assessed, did they get kind of a plus or minus two standard deviation, that middle 68%? None of them, none of those projects, they got that that 68% of people to cluster within the same level of risk. Yeah. So, yeah, basically this means is that even when we exclude all the people who are most disagreeable, we still can't agree 
on which band the risk is going to go in. Um, now, what we don't know, and uh, this annoys me because the researchers should have checked this, is whether it's the same people every time. So are there some assessors who are consistently giving very low scores or very high scores? Or is it that everyone is, prop is like varying their scores project to project, and sometimes one assessor is out of ballpark, sometimes it's another assessor? Because if it was consistent, if it's the same group of people who are always very low or very high, then you can explain that, you can train it away, you can prevent those people doing risk assessments, you can fix the problem. Um, so that would be really good to know. Um, second possibility is you could say, well, maybe it's because they're four different organisations. You Maybe the reason they can't agree is that each organisation does different types of projects, has different risk tolerance. But when you look at the organisations in isolation, you do get a slightly tighter range of scores, and each organisation assesses each project a bit differently. But that's what you'd expect if you like randomly took subsets of the data anyway. When you randomly take a subset, you expect it to have a small distribution. Um, and again, there is statistical testing that they could have done here to see whether the organisations are systematically different that they didn't do. Um, but even without that testing, you can see that the differences between the organisations aren't enough to explain the differences between the individuals. And I think this finding is, is important, Drew, because our listeners are probably unlikely to care about what happens across four different organisations. They're, they're more likely to be care, care and be interested in what happens within their own organisation. So to know that, that that range still existed when you had people who were possibly had a much closer aligned set of assumptions. So even if they're referring back to, you know, what process does my organisation follow for this project? What risk controls do we have in place for this type of activity? What's our incident history associated with this type of project? Um, you know, um, possibly a much closer set of set of assumptions, you still can't tighten up that uh, that range of, of assessment outcomes. Yeah, so, so what we see is that if you stick to a single organisation and you eliminate the outliers, you've still got a widespread of scores on every project. So third possibility is that it's the type of projects. And so that's why they gave some very mundane projects and some slightly left field projects, because they were sort of, I think what they're expecting is that people would be very good on the mundane projects and very disagreeing on the novel projects. But what they found is that people think that the novel projects have higher risk, but they don't have more agreement about that. So it's sort of got a higher average score, but the spread is still the same. I mean, I think this is, I would have thought, something somewhat to be expected. I think if people are assessing something they're familiar with, they might have some overconfidence in how it's performed. You know, they may not be hurting people every day doing these tasks, but when you're starting to ask people about radiation treatment methods and things like that, and they have to stop and think about how they might actually do that project, and it might be things that are they might think their organisation doesn't have controls for. And, and so just putting myself in the shoes of participants and putting myself through that thought process, this was something that I could see how how those scores might be higher on average. But when you've got a 1 to 25 spread, I mean, it's just as wide um, anyway, isn't it? Yeah, it's not really possible to get worse than a 1 to 25 spread when you move from the um, mundane to the novel projects. Um, so David, at this point, I really think we're left with two possible explanations for the results. The first possibility is that the assessors genuinely are that bad at coming to agreement. So that people are genuinely, routinely, in the real world when making these sorts of assessments, being very inconsistent with each other. Um, the other possibility is that there's some factor about real-world projects and real-world risk assessments that makes them perform better than they did in this particular study. 
For example, maybe there's some information that normally causes those different scores, and the researchers have left out that information, and so the participants have had to guess, and they've all come up with different guesses, and that's why the results are spread. David, if you had to... I I realise you don't have information, you're basically guessing, but if you had to guess, which one would you say it is? Do you think it's an experimental effect, or do you think that this is a real-world thing that's happening? Look, I think it's, I don't want to sit on the fence too much, but it could be a combination of both. So I think there's an experimental effect here because I think asking people to come up with a number about a job where they get a couple of paragraphs of information about means that there's a lot of guessing and assumptions and um, and individual kind of um, sort of sort of not, I don't want to say assumptions again, but there's, there's a lot of ind- individual thought processes that um, are very hard to kind of pin down with the experimental design. But we still see it in organisations in in practice all the time. Like you might just be talking to a group about working at heights, and you'll have some someone, some supervisor somewhere that thinks you know it's a high risk, and then you'll have some supervisor who thinks it's a low risk. You know, with a very specific situation, the same sort of task, the same training, the same fall arrest, the same whatever it is. And so, so I do think there's um, some real world individual differences in how people perceive risk. Yeah, I, I think the same. I, I do wish that the researchers had done a little bit more to interrogate the real world effects of this. I think they had access to the organisations, had access to the people. They could have explored the reason for the outliers a bit more directly in the study. But also, I know that there have been previous studies that have done that extra step and it hasn't fixed the problem. So there have been people who've done similar work where they've tried to work out what are the different assumptions that people are making when they get different results. And then they've got the participants to agree on the answers to those assumptions and redo the risk assessment. And it hasn't really helped. So I think the sort of theory that the differences come from different assumptions is partly true, but also there's a problem that's bigger than just lack of information causes the different risk assessments. I mean, it's always maybe you don't know what you're going to find, so you don't always know the questions you're asked when you're doing research. And if you're doing a PhD, you know, the objective of um, doing a PhD is to get the PhD, not necessarily solve every problem that you come across through the process. And and so maybe they didn't expect to have this range of results. So they, you know, they didn't have all of the design that they might have needed to to understand it. But you're right, it would have been fascinating to go back. I would love to get speak to these 77 people and give them a very specific risk, like give them, okay, what is the risk of a work group being hit by a car and give them the road, the time of day, all of the controls that are in place, the speed that cars are going, how many cars are going past per half hour, how many people in the work group, what tasks they're performing, what the weather and visibility is like. Just give them a really, really specific situation, ask them to assess that risk with almost no assumption left to be made and almost do it with a, with a like you said, with clarifying every single question the assessor might have. And that would be a really interesting study to know and maybe drew these studies have been done you would know if they've been done but it would be interesting to see whether the clustering gets tight in that sort of a situation yeah no no, i hear absolutely what you're saying that if you're doing a phd at some point you just got to graduate you can't just keep doing extra studies to explain your results and find new because you you try to explain the results and you find even more things um the next study that i would like to do is actually just to tell everyone their own scores and tell them what the distribution was and just ask them to talk about you what you gave 25, other people gave answers ranging from 1 to 25. What were you thinking? You know, why, why do you think that you, you were more score than the other? And just find out what they think the reason is that they disagree with other people. I mean, that would be a really 
fascinating research question because the answers you would get is an understanding of the thought processes that people take. And if you can cluster those around three or four or five or 10 common thought processes that people adopt when they do risk assessments, then you can think about how your process can either push people into one of those thought process swim lanes so that you actually know how they're approaching um, the particular assessment task, or you can actually start to understand, interpret the differences that you get based on some of those sort of common ways that people think about this. Yeah, I guess underlying this, I've always got the suspicion that the person who scores things as one is the person who knows that if their project has any higher than low risk, then they're going to have to do extra paperwork. And the person who scores it as 25 is the person who just wants that project to be canned anyway and <laughs> thinks that the easiest way to get rid of it is to mark it as high risk. Ah, uh, true. Is that... Yeah, that's that's not even cynical anymore because we know that's 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 often the way that you know people people use uh, use organisational processes to achieve all so all sorts of means and, and to achieve all sorts of goals. So let's move on to the conclusion by the researchers. I've got a fairly large block quote here. Maybe we won't read it all out, um, but fundamentally they're saying that the risk rating is dependent on the person who undertakes the assessment. Despite the assessor being provided with identical information to other assessors and using the same organisational risk assessment process. What that means in practice is that if you're then using those decisions to make decisions about allocating funding, then it is potluck. If you get the assessor who gives you a low score, you're going to get funded. If you get the assessor who gives you a high risk, then you're not going to get funded. And that's not to do with fundamentals about the project. That's to do with fundamentals about who got asked to do the risk assessment. And the researchers quite rightly consider that a bit of a problem when you're trying to allocate taxpayer funds using a supposedly objective process. Yeah, Drew, I think, um, I mean, that's a reasonable conclusion. I think um, the researchers seem to spend their time in the built environment engineering sort of world. And so they were particularly looking at how projects get get approved, if you like. And, and obviously this this idea that if a, a project has a high risk, then it you know may not get approved. Um, but I think also there's some there's some other real world problems in the in the safety space, not just about which which approvals get which projects get approved or not. That the the project they didn't really make any conclusions about well what does this actually mean for for safety practice within organisations and understanding and allocating resources towards the mitigation of different safety risks. So th that sounds like a good prompt to move on to takeaways. Just before we do, I guess the final thing I wanted to say about the paper itself is that. I see this sort of result very much as a putting the ball into someone else's court. So regardless of the limitations with what the researchers have done, they have got a reasonably valid answer to the question. And the answer is that these processes are not giving you consistent results. You can pick holes in that, you can pick holes in their methods, you can find limitations, but that's the answer that's on the table. The ball's now in the court of someone who wants to use these methods to demonstrate that no, they can use the methods more reliably, more consistently than the researchers have shown. It's good enough that we should now accept this as the default answer. Unless someone proves otherwise, this is how inconsistent risk assessment is. But David, I'm, I am really interested in your thoughts about what's the appropriate takeaway, because I'm a bit disappointed given how good the rest of the research is. The, the authors sort of went down the very predictable path. They found this really interesting thing and their response is to say that, well, we've got to work out how come it's this bad and we've got to fix it. So they've seen this process, which has an international standard for risk assessment that has very standardized processes. It's very technical. It's very ob supposedly objective. It's very heavy on process. 
And still, it's giving this wide variety of results. And their answer is, well, we've got to fix the process. We've got to put more process in. We've got to make it more objective. We've got to fight more to give people consistent answers. And my personal opinion is that this misses the whole point. That we, We're already trying pretty hard. And if we're still not converging on a common answer, then I think we need to rethink the original assumption that there is a common answer that can be found and just sort of accept that no... Risk is, this is like proof or at least demonstration that risk is not this objective thing that we can use very intensive processes to go out and find. Yeah, Drew, I'd, I'd agree with, with what you've said there. I think I like the way you're sort of challenging this, you know, the very basic assumption for all of our risk assessment is that there is a, a level of risk that's out there that's positivist or objective, like you said, or a true level of risk or a real risk. And we just need to keep searching for methods to get closer and closer to that true risk. Now, if we think risk is something more constructivist, which is that it doesn't actually exist, it only exists in our heads or in the in the collective heads of, of people in an organization, if they can agree, then it becomes less about what the actual value is and more about what the alignment or the uncertainty or the or the consensus is around a particular risk issue. Now that's all kind of like maybe not that practical for people, but I think it becomes quite practical quite fast because risk should be a central idea for everything that we do in safety practice because fundamentally everything we do comes down to how important we think things are in our organization or how likely we think things are to to hurt people so we've got to think about what we're basing all of those decisions that we make in safety management in our organization on you're in an organization and you're basing you know you've got these critical risks and you've decided what your critical risks are based on where they've sat in your risk assessment matrix and you know, you do risk assessments at the start of every project to decide, you know, what you need to do. And if risk assessment is a central part of your safety management practice and your risk matrix is at the core of that and you have people doing these assessments, then this research should really make you kind of rock back in your chair and ask some really big questions about how do you know you're doing the best things in your organization to manage safety? Thanks for that, David. I think that probably leaves us in a good position for practical takeaways. Uh, we've each inserted a couple of things into this list. I'll go first if you don't mind. And So the first one I've got is that at their very best, best, this sort of study shows that risk scores are a proxy for something else. So if we're trying to use risk to help us make decisions, and if people are coming up with different risk scores, then really what's making those decisions is whatever the underlying reason is that's causing people to have those differences. So we need to have robust conversations about what's causing the disagreement and make our final decisions based on that, instead of using risk as this uh, like Cold War type thing. You Obviously, there's one person that doesn't want to go ahead with the project. There's someone else who wants to go ahead with the project. And we're making it a conversation about risk instead of a conversation about why one person thinks it's worthwhile and the other person doesn't think it's worthwhile. So Drew, I'm happy for you to keep going with your practical takeaways. I think I only threw one in at the end. Okay, so I think the second one is we should be ready for the fact that maybe the reason for these differences genuinely is personal. That when we're talking about making decisions under uncertainty, that is a fundamentally very human process. We've got humans, they're going to make different decisions. And there's no magical process that turns those different humans into robots or cogs in a machine that produce the same answer. So we've sort of got two choices, sorry, three choices really. We either trust the decision makers to use sound judgment, or we don't trust them, or we make them make the judgment together so that it's a consensus process, not a individual process. 
But the sort of worst case is where we force them to express their judgment in artificial terms, like these risk tables. That doesn't make them have better judgment or worse judgment. It just makes the differences become, become inconsistencies. And then following on from that, my third one is that one of the reasons we use risk assessments, particularly in this sort of project, is to improve the transparency of decision making. You know, these are public water companies, or pub at least water companies where ultimately they're funded by taxpayer money. And so they're trying to make their decisions in ways which are transparent, that people can audit them, look at them, and see that the money's being used appropriately. And what this sort of research shows is that risk assessment doesn't add transparency, it takes it away. Because we're turning these differences between human judgments and try to force them into risk categories. And we're saying we've made the decision because the risk is low or because the risk is high. And this study just shows that those are purely arbitrary categories. They're not giving us more information about how and why the decision was made like it was made. I think Joe, that takes me back into episode eight where um said, you know, you always when you use a risk matrix and you you give a, a risk a score like high, medium, or low, you always end up with less information than what you what you started with. Um so you're dumbing down that information. But the the practical takeaway I had is sort of I want to sort of say two related words. One one word's uncertainty and obviously another word's assumption. And I think they follow each other. I think where you've got uncertainty of information when you're trying to do a risk assessment, then you have to make some assumptions. And in my opinion, the most important column in your risk register is the one that lists all of the assumptions that have been made in the risk assessment. And so if you don't have an assumptions column in your register template, then I'd probably say practically insert one and teach your organization how to use it. Because the only way to know why a person assessed something as high or low is to know what they were thinking. And you need to know what they were thinking when they filled in the gaps around the information that they didn't have. So, you know, when you when you get as a safe freshman, when you get a risk assessment across your desk from a project manager, if you don't have that information in front of you and you're having a conversation with him, they're the, they're the question to ask. Ask them, you know, what information didn't they have that they had to, you know, fill in for themselves? What are they uncertain about with their assessment? What what assumptions did they make that, you know, aren't listed in the controls or something like that? And without that dialogue, there's kind of almost no point caring what the number is based on this research. You know, it could be low, it could be high, but there's no reason to trust what that number is unless you, you know more information. David, I'll agree with that and go a step further to say that the conversation we have around that column is more valuable than anything else we're doing in the risk assessment. Because it's that conversation, you know, half of those assumptions are things that one person is assuming will be put in place to keep the task safe. That's why they've given it a low score. And the reason the other person's given a high score is they're assuming those things aren't in place. And so when we have that conversation, that's when we are more likely to actually change the way the task happens to fit in with the safest set of assumptions. Andrew, you've got an invitation for our listeners this week, a bit of a bit of a challenge. Yeah, so normally we ask listeners things that we'd like to know or hear from you. This week, it's more of a mission. Go out and find two or more risk assessments in your own organization that are as identical as possible. So it might be a risk assessment for a particular hazard, like you're finding two JSAs that have the same hazard listed, or two risk assessments for similar projects, and just compare them and tell us what you find. Do you find that people assess the same risk in the same way, or do you find the sort of divergence that this project found? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to those answers. I'm a bit I'm disappointed that I'm not inside an organization anymore, and I can't just go pick up a couple of JSAs from different work groups um, about the same task or or something. So um, please share what you what you find. So Drew, today we asked the question, how subjective is technical risk assessment? And the answer? Very. Scores <laughs> ranging from 1 to 25 out of a possible range of 1 to 25. 
So that's it for this week. Uh, we hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Join us in the discussion on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 